So it is August 27th, 2020 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And this is uh, Meditation and Attachment, Deepening Your Practice. And we've been talking about uh, the Satipatthana Sutta for the last uh, few weeks. And um, I've been talking about the Dhammas for the last two weeks. But I never read the, the text about that because I wanted to cover the material itself. And so I thought that I would begin uh, and read some of the text. It's, uh, I don't know, probably 25 minutes of text. So we'll see what, how far we get. <laughs> and how monks does he, in regard to dhammas, abide contemplating dhammas? Here, in regard to dhammas, he abides contemplating dhammas in terms of the five hindrances. And, does, and how does he regard the dhammas abide and how does he in regard to dhammas abide contemplating dhammas in terms of the five hindrances if sensual desires present him he knows there is sensual desire in me sensual sensual desires not present in him he knows there is no sensual desire in me he knows how unrisen sensual desire can arise how arisen sensual desire can be removed and how a future arising of removed sensual desire can be prevented. If aversion is present, he knows there is aversion in me, and it repeats in much the same way. If sloth and torpor is present, he knows sloth and torpor is present. If restlessness and worry is present, he knows restlessness and worry is present. If doubt is present, he knows there is doubt. <clears throat> In this way, in regard to dhammas, he abides contemplating dhammas internally, externally, internally and externally. He abides contemplating the nature of arising, of passing away, of both arising and passing away in dhammas. Mindfulness that there are dhammas is established in to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how, in regard to dhammas, he abides contemplating dhammas in terms of the five hindrances. So that that piece, that last piece is the refrain. In in Dhammas we go through a series of lists, the hindrances, the aggregates, uh, the sense spheres, um, the awakening factors, um, the noble truths, Again, monks, in regard to dhammas, he abides contemplating dhammas in terms of the five aggregates of clinging. And how, how does he regard dhammas? Uh, and how does he, in regard to dhammas, abide contemplating dhammas in terms of the five aggregates? Here he knows there is material form, such it's arising, such it's passing away. There is feeling, such as arising, such as it's passing away, such as cognition, such as such it's arising, such as it's passing away. There are volitions, such as they're arising, such they're passing away. There is consciousness, such it's arising, such it's passing away. And how, uh, and in this way, in regard to dhammas, he abides contemplating dhammas internally, externally, internally and externally, and so forth. Again, monks, in regard to dhammas, he abides contemplating dhammas in terms of the six internal and external sense spheres. 
how does he, in regard to dhammas, abide contemplating dhammas in terms of the six internal and external sense spheres? Here he knows the eye, he knows form, he knows the fetter that arises dependent on both, and he also knows how an unarisen fetter can arise, how an arisen fetter can be removed, and how a future arising um, of the removed fetter can be prevented. He knows the ear, he knows the nose, he knows the tongue, he knows the body, he knows the mind. Um, <clears throat> awakening factors. Again, monks in regard to dhammas, he abides contemplating dhammas in terms of the seven awakening factors. Here, the mindfulness awakening factor is present. He knows it. Uh, if the investigations of dhamana, dhamma's awakening factor is present, he knows it. If the energy awakening factor is present in him, he knows it. If the joy awakening factor is present in him, he knows it. If the tranquility awakening factor is present in him, he knows it. We have a limited number of pronouns uh, that come up in this text. <laughs> uh, if the concentration awakening factor is present in him, he knows it. If the equanimity awakening factor is present in him, he knows it. Um, contemplating the dhammas internally, externally, internally, and externally. Four Noble Truths, again, in regard to dhammas, he abides contemplating dhammas in terms of the Four Noble Truths. He knows, as it really is, this is dukkha. He knows, as it really is, this is the arising of dukkha. He knows, as it really is, the cessation of dukkha. And he knows, as it really is, this is the way leading to the cessation of dukkha. And then the refrain, and then monks, if anyone should develop these four satipatthanas in such a way for seven years, one of two fruits could be expected for him, either final knowledge here and now, or if there is a trace of clinging left, non-returning, let alone seven years, six years, five years, four years, three years, two years, one year, seven months, six months, five months, four months, three months, two months, one month, half a month, if anyone should develop these four satipatthanas in such a way for seven days, one of two fruits could be expected him, either final knowledge here and now, or there is a trace of clinging left, non-returning. So it is with reference to this, it is said, monks, this is the direct path for purification of being, for surmounting of sour, sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, requiring the true method for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four Satipatthanas. This is what the Blessed One said. The monks are satisfied and delighted with the Blessed One's words. So I kind of flipped that a little bit, but... One of the things that um, I think that uh, as we organize our practice, we need to consider what it is that we're doing in terms of the practice and in what way is a good way to do it so that we can make sense out of what it is that uh, the practice is intended to take you toward. Um, we learn the basic uh, ability to meditate. So this collection of techniques uh, 
Uh, one of the things that uh, stands out about this is that the way that you practice tends to lead to the kinds of insights that you have from practicing. And so that uh, if you don't organize your practice particularly, or you don't have a direction set for it, the, the kind of insights that you can find in the practice tend to be repetitive and may not actually be the insights that are necessary to lead you to a place of less suffering. And so some understanding of what the, the teaching is um, and what it's intended to show you is a good idea. Uh, the Satipatthana Sutta is the canonical uh, uh, expression of the Buddha in terms of how to practice. Um, and uh, in all of the centuries since then, there have been different uh, commentaries and different expressions of how one might practice uh, to get there. And this is really based on the Theravada view of things. The Zen view is quite different. The, Ter the Tibetan view is quite different. There's um, multiple lineages in, in both of the other vehicles. Um, in the beginning, I think we, we come to practice for a particular reason um, and uh, seem to be able to identify in the idea of practicing meditation that the thing that we want to get out of it is available to us if we practice in that way. One of the things about practice is that it takes a lot of energy it takes a lot of time and takes a lot of resources and so uh, if you can organize the practice in such a way that you're really getting the thing out of it that you want to get out of it it seems more worthwhile to continue to practice and to put the necessary resources into um, <clears throat> um, doing that practice In the West, in the beginning, of course, it, it came over mainly as a retreat practice, uh, not so much as a householder practice, uh, just a, as a daily householder practice, I guess is what I mean. Um, and so to, to find time, energy, and resources to go to a retreat and sit uh, is a substantial commitment to the practice. In the West, um, I always just to say this story because when I came uh, to practice, what I wanted was uh, enlightenment. That's what I thought would be the thing. And I wanted it because I thought that it would relieve uh, uh, my, the problems that I had in my life. Um, this was, of course, a complete misunderstanding of what enlightenment was, but nonetheless, it was the thing that was motivating me to come to practice. In the first uh, introduction to Vipassana class, I took at Ordinary Dharma in Venice uh, with Ketriana Reed. Uh, this would be in, say, 92. Um, when I, when we, every, all those students went around the room and uh, were asked why it is that you came, I said, I wanted to be enlightened. And, and the, the room filled with laughter, but it wasn't a good kind of laughter. It was the kind of laughter that suggested that that was an unreasonable pursuit uh, in meditation, and it felt uh, un uncomfortable. Um, and so I continued to look for different teachers uh, who were more oriented toward that, and that's how I ended up with Shinzen. And I, I'm currently also studying with Dan Brown, who's also in this has this idea that enlightenment is available for householders. And so when you read the Satipatthana Sutta, it does uh, suggest that 
if you practice in the way that it's uh, laid out and organized, that you will have this uh, outcome. Um, but the practices themselves, uh, as a person who likes a lot of instructions and a lot of uh, structure and guidance in terms of the kind of practice I do, seem uh, a little soft to me. Um, and also, um, Uh, not uh, providing the kind of relief on the path itself uh, that um, um, uh, I guess makes the ordinary ordinariness of householder existence bearable enough. Um, I think that um, 20 years ago or so, uh, it was very, Life was very difficult for me at the time, so. In studying machines, and his approach was to provide um, meditative experiences, of sim so simple instructions that provided meditative experiences so that you had a sense that you were getting somewhere. And then um, <clears throat> to move you along uh, in, the, in that uh, a traditional, uh, well, I think he encapsulated it as a traditional uh, uh, Theravada path, even though really I think what he teaches is more a mashup of all three of the lineages. Laura, you have uh, a question? Nope. There is a little blue hand there. Um, all right. If you come back, let me know. Um, but if I were to take it out of the, 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 the canonical text and just describe it as what it is that we want to be able to see clearly in, in the practice of meditation is that we have this range of sensing experiences, um, uh, six senses, touching, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, and mind and that that gathers data from the world outside. And then we process that data internally and uh, we assign meaning to it. And then we create the perception of, of the world and the perception of self, conceptual reality. And that we can really make it in any way that we want to. And so we begin to try and see clearly what it is that we're actually sensing and uh, remove the distortions from it and, and create uh, uh, and view the experience of conceptual reality as a, as a fairly pure reflection of what's actually happening out there. Um, we then begin to want to explore how conditioning affects the way that we create conceptual reality. So exploring what that perceptual database is that we use to create the perception of the world as we uh, experience it. Uh, and then to begin to work out uh, some of the distortions that might be built into the database itself so that we can be actually present in the experience uh, as it's happening in the present moment and respond from that place. Um, the Buddhist word in English or the English translation of the the, the uh, of that process is 
we attach to things. And in attaching to the sensing experience, fixate it into the perception of something solid. <clears throat> so the object that can be sensed and the capacity to sense it, have contact, the consciousness of that sensing experience arises. Uh, the body-mind evaluates it for urgency. That's kind of how I like to frame it. If it's urgent, it goes to the head of the line and gets attention immediately. If it's not important, probably doesn't get into consciousness. And then if it's pleasant and there's time to explore the pleasant aspect, it'll enter into consciousness. Then that undifferentiated, unfixated experience is compared to the perceptual database. And if there's a close enough match, then the meaning of, of that conditioned experience attaches to the present moment and conceptual reality is then projected outward and fills the, what appears to be the space outside. Um, but how do you see clearly how the conditioned responses to things inform the way that you shape uh, the world and, uh, and also the experience of self? And that's what these meditation instructions are meant to do, to really tune you into that experience of how you're making things out of the data that you're taking in. Um, as you begin to explore it, I think what you also begin to notice is that imagination plays a piece in this and how open and flexible is the imagination in filling in the spaces between what uh, is happening in the present moment and what you may already have uh, experienced. This is one of the ways that we get caught up in samsara. We keep making the present moment in, um, in the way that uh, we have experienced it previously. And it loses the, the, the potentialities of the present moment in, in making it into a resemblance of things that have already happened. As you go deeper and deeper into this process and in the meditation process itself, this is really what we're intending uh, to watch is how we select the sensing moments um, uh, and then form them into the, the, the string of data that, that we then use to make up this, this uh, conceptual reality. To see first, of course, that, that this is just the activity of the body-mind. There is nobody doing this, uh, that that perception of the self is um, just uh, another a piece of conceptual reality that you've created out of the same sensing experience that you make everything else out of. That the sensing experience really doesn't last. Nothing really lasts. Uh, we have this concept of the present moment, um, but actually we really don't know anything besides the present moment. And so the construction of time even becomes something that is made up and, and created as conceptual reality. Um, can you then slip into this place of timelessness where you're simply being in this flow of sensing experience and that you actually don't have to fixate anything in that flow of sensing experience. It can just be the sensing. And then when you need to interact with the environment or interact with people around you, uh, solidify it and make it into uh, a, a world that's communi communicative between people and also that you can navigate. 
as you watch the sensing experience and notice how it gathers the information, what you begin to notice is that even the collection of sensing is conditioned, that you pay attention to things that have high value to you and you don't pay attention to things that don't have high value to you. And so you keep creating over and over again the perception of self and world based on your conditioned interests uh, of what uh, has more value to you than what doesn't have more value to you. And so uh, it's, a, it's a highly selective uh, grab of different sense points that you then use to make the world. And then uh, you can investigate the conditioning around that. Uh, the uh, an example of that would be that as a child, uh, certain behaviors elicited a response from your caregivers that you wanted, and certain behaviors uh, uh, didn't elicit the the response that you wanted. And so you began to place value on the the, the activity that that got you the response that you wanted, and in and that conditioned the kind of uh, responses that you have uh, now, even though the, the conditions of childhood are, are long gone, and the things that didn't uh, uh, get you the things that you wanted have less value. Um, and so you get into that samsaric rut of just doing the things that uh, you're conditioned to think will get the thing that you want, even though there's a full range of other possibilities there, many of which you may not have investigated to know whether they would be successful or not. In the present moment exists all of the potentialities, any of the choices that you might make, but we select through this, this conditioned process of what has value to us uh, and assign it to the, the whole range of potentialities and tend to pick over and over again these uh, so same limited array of choices, which tends to reinforce the, the sense of value that they have. So part of this is to really uh, open up uh, and uh, experience everything that's here, all of those potentialities, uh, and be free to choose whichever one uh, might be the most uh, skillful in the moment. One of the things about the conundrum of the human condition is that the complexity of the outcome of the, ch the choices that you make is, is beyond our uh, ability to comprehend it in enough time to affect the kind of choice that you make. We tend to, uh, um, early in the practice perhaps, or uh, without too much insight, assume that we're making a, a choice that's deliberate and well-reasoned when uh, it may be just the, the conditioned response. All of these processes, of course, are unconscious and precede the moment when it enters consciousness and you know uh, the choice that you're about to make or that you've made the choice. <clears throat> So in this uh, gradual development of uh, clarity around what's happening in the present moment, you become more and more sensitive to all of these conditions that are affecting that process. And you begin to uh, 
move through the perceptual database and clear out the unskillful conditioned responses and replace them with skillful uh, responses because uh, all of that processing is unconscious and really consciousness is there just to, uh, in the last ditch moment, abandon an unskillful choice. It isn't the thing that really goes through the process of creating what that choice will be. Um, this is all making sense. Uh, I'm trying to describe this uh, in a way. Uh, in the Satipatthana Sutta, in, in, in all of the different descriptions of, uh, of body, of feeling tone, of mind, of dhammas, all of these different things are set up for you to be able to monitor. Uh, the aspect of uh, diligence, so the, the balance of energy, uh, uh, sensory clarity, mindfulness, and concentration as the basic skill set of meditation. You develop these individually, and then once you have dexterity with them, you can begin to manage them uh, as a whole group. And that that's the basic meditation stance. And then you can turn your attention to begin to explore these different aspects of your own conditioning and to begin to evaluate whether there, there's skillful conditioning there or unskillful conditioning there and begin to root out the unskillful conditioning and reinforce the skillful conditioning or develop additional skills that are necessary so that in that flow of being, the, the, the conditioned experience that you have produces over and over again these skillful choices which then puts you on a trajectory of uh, good karma say um, ray kurzweil who's a confabulous i don't know if you've uh, read anything of him he he projects into the future what he thinks technology can do um, and in talking about this conundrum of um, potentialities. Uh, consider in the present moment all of the potentialities that you have, all of the possibilities that you could choose, uh, all being present and choosing one of them. That becomes the trajectory, the, the thing that's happening and all of the other possibilities fall away. But in that moment, it opens up all of the potentialities in that moment. And then you choose one and you move to the next one, all of those potentialities open up. All of the other ones have fallen away. But the order of magnitude of complication to be able to predict, predict very, very far down the way is just impossible. Um, Ray Kurzweil speculated that if you converted all of the matter in the known universes into computing machines, it would take them a thousand years to calculate the movement of a single atom uh, through uh, an inch of water. But that your smartphone has enough computing power to in reverse calculate the, the trajectory that the atom took. And so we're very good at creating stories and narratives that explain this process of how we move through the world and how people affect us. And, um, and so really coming into this place of understanding that we, we don't 
uh, have that uh, narrative that's so um, satisfying in the moment that we need to select uh, from the potentialities that are there. And so we need to condition ourselves so that we have this uh, skillful capacity to move over and over again into uh, an ethical stance in the world, I guess is a good way to put it. Dan talks about um, not necessarily choosing if you don't need to in the moment, letting uh, each of those moments flow by, uh, taking in what's happening and not necessarily fixating it uh, as if everything that you're experiencing is like somebody writing uh, something on water. That only when you need to fixate do you then create the experience of self and world. So uh, this idea that you can come out of that habit, um, we, we by the time we're uh, old enough to practice really, I would think, particularly in the West, the habit of fixating things and making things solid is so deeply ingrained that there's no freedom at all of whether we do it or not. We're just habitually doing it. And then to move to this place uh, where there's actual freedom and whether you, you do that or not and can just exist and uh, just be in this, this constant flow of uh, experience. Why would that be of interest? Uh, and I think the main reason is why it's because it's free of suffering. There's very little, if any, suffering in that. And the ability to move between that, that unfixated state and the fixated state um, creates an, an experience of very little suffering, which in some sense may be what I was really coming to at the beginning uh, when I thought that enlightenment meant that there would be no difficulties in life anymore. Um, is that making sense in, in terms of why to do that? So then how is it that one practices in that way? And one of the practices that I found to be so illustrative of this is called the ideal parent figure protocol, which Dan Brown developed. Um, because it allows you the exercise of creating uh, a version of conceptual reality and to begin to, to see uh, how you do it so that you, you have these links to the, the actual outcome of the conditioning that you have. Because it's so easy to create these explanatory narratives in reverse, um, we can often obscure the things that are, are difficult or uncomfortable um, that we don't want to really know or engage about ourselves uh, and bypass them with these, these narratives that we create. But when you come into the experience of watching the process of creating a version of uh, or imagined version of conceptual reality, you can see how these biases and these conditioned responses affect your ability to do that which in a way links you very uh, quickly to a, uh, a uh, understanding of how your conditioning went. And it, it has a real uh, sharp capacity to bypass the uh, alterations of narrative that the cognitive mind can, 
create to shield yourselves, shield ourselves from the, the conditioned experiences that we don't want to know about. Does that make any sense? As a description of why one might consider this practice. Um, one of the things that uh, became evident to me in doing this particular practice was that the capacity to imagine some things gets pinched off. I like to use the word pinched because it describes the that flow. So imagination, uh, imagining self and world and imagining uh, exchanges and communications and all of the rest uh, uh, of the capacities of this uh, function of uh, being human um, can be actually limited. Your conditioning can play a part in limiting it. If in childhood you want something over and over again that you can't get, you begin to not imagine that you want it because it saves you the disappointment of not getting it over and over again. And you can begin to see how your capacity to imagine the kind of life you might like to have or, 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 or uh, the way that you might be in the world is limited. And you, so you can't uh, figure out what to do in order to move yourself in that direction. In attachment terms, uh, and I, I'd like to talk about that here because this is it is meditation and attachment. But these two primary mechanisms that that, that define the human condition one is a, the attachment mechanism that goes off um, when we are frightened or we, we feel that we're in danger. The attachment mechanism goes off, and it provides us with uh, the capacity to seek uh, safety and connection to somebody who will protect us. In childhood, of course, it's the caregivers, if you have that uh, idea about them. And in the adult life, uh, it is the relationships that you bring next, close to you, the people that you rely on, uh, that you turn to when that uh, sense of abandonment or that sense of danger arises, that you can seek uh, immediate proximity to so that they'll help you, uh, they'll protect you. But the other mechanism that's so primary is exploration. And in, in uh, secure functioning individuals, the, the, the dynamic relationship between attachment and exploration uh, are uh, operational. If the attachment mechanism goes off, it's very likely that the exploration me uh, uh, mechanism will go off because you're retreating, you're seeking. Uh, comfort. And if the uh, exploration mechanism is on, it's the likely that the attachment mechanism is off, so that you're free to go and explore and discover things and find meaning. And, and so you want to have this integrated dance of them back and forth, and depending on your conditioning in childhood, that uh, may not be operational. Some people's attachment mechanism goes off, but their exploration mechanism doesn't. Some people's uh, exploration goes off and their attachment doesn't. And it creates these uh, perceptions of the world. And so uh, one of the things about view uh, is that the, the views come on really early, earlier than the autobiographical memory comes on, earlier than the capacity to, to uh, experience the sense of self and and uh, oriented that way. And so 
you can be uh, uh, caught up and convinced by the nature of the views that you've created so early in your life and not be able to see through them. Uh, and so um, efficiency is, is always a good thing for me because I tend to be an impatient uh, person. Uh, any kind of technique that would really illustrate this uh, quick uh, has a strong appeal to me. I think that's one of the reasons why I like this one so much. It's very efficient uh, and really uh, points out the, the nature of this. So I thought tonight, uh, uh, um, in uh, reviewing the Satipatthana Sutta and understanding the the nature of the exploration that's meant to to create a deliverance from uh, suffering into this place of freedom, that we use uh, the ideal parent figure uh, meditation as a way of uh, examining how that process of selecting the sensing experiences and then creating them into conceptual reality, um, which I think is the ultimate goal of all of this, um, can happen. I will do the guidance in such a way that you don't really need any preliminary for it, but uh, any questions before we begin? So what was that like? That bad? George? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I had a, I had, I had a really hard time imagining being held uh -huh. or any sort of physical contact. Um, it was hard for me to manifest any sort of audio or visual experience with that. Uh -huh. um, I tried to place myself or give myself an idea of what uh, an ideal mother figure would be. I was oddly a little more successful with an ideal father figure, but that was oh. really, which is surprising, but that, uh, that was hard. Um, so I felt, I felt like I was kind of, I felt like I was an ugly baby. And so. <laughs> <laughs> that was the reason nobody wanted to pick you up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that would be the example of the reverse engineering that I was talking about there. <laughs> or I was like, I was, I, I was, I was, I'm gay. And so like my mom or my dad's like, I, <laughs> yeah, 42 seconds after you're bored, they immediately recognized that you were gay. <laughs> <laughs> and didn't want to pick you up. <laughs> yeah. I, thank you. <laughs> So what, I, what I'm trying to get at here is we make, these, we make these narratives that explain all of this stuff to us. Uh, and then when you begin to examine this in detail uh, in terms of how you're able to construct it, um, uh, this is a demand question, right? So I'm, I'm asking you to come up with something and you're searching your database for a way to come up with it. And there's no entries in your database for having been held. So how do you imagine that? And then uh, so you can't use the you can't use entries that aren't there, right? But then maybe you could imagine uh, uh, what that would be like, 
except that then we be, we begin to get in touch with the pinches on the imagination that you you limited your imagination around being held perhaps as a child because you couldn't get it and it was less painful not to to imagine wanting it and then as an adult later when it when that seems like a sort of natural thing even that's difficult to do and so this begins to illustrate the the nature of the database that we're using to create conceptual reality in a way that's very efficient if you if you follow my drift on this and then we can begin to dismantle those narratives right i must have been an ugly baby or i i was a gay baby that they recognized immediately and their aversion to those things um, are what caused that um, and so we want to just take those apart it is it is um a very ordinary uh conditioned response that is handed down from caregiver to infant to caregiver to infant around physical contact and it probably has more to do with the the, the experience that they had themselves and 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 took in and because they never dissembled it deconstructed it uh, they were just transmitting it and, and you got it and you you have a good picture of what it is and uh, and also to understand that it's changeable which i think is really a hopeful piece so thank you for saying that <laughs> someone else yeah. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I had an. It, I think I was offended initially, not at you, just offended at the concept of needing a father figure. Uh, yeah. And then I was, and then I was, well, let me just make an attempt at this. And I think I just kind of en envisioned the universe, a cluster of stars, uh -huh. as the father figure. It was a bizarre um, frame of reference of trying to come up with a father figure. So it turned out to be the universe. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> and was there a father figure available to you when you were a child? Uh, not really. <laughs> okay. So it's it's a kind of an absence of conditioning rather than a than a reaction to conditioning. Correct. Yeah. Good. Hi. Hi, I well, so I was able to get to a, like a safe place that seemed very easy uh -huh. to get to what myself. Was that like? Um, well, it was a, it was actually surprising. I hadn't <laughs> thought of this place in years. It was a place that was behind my home. Um, I was a, on a golf course and I was like, oh, it was this, it was a, like this, can't even explain it. It was like this thing that would turn around that other people, the golfers would be on, uh -huh. <laughs> would spin. And I was like, oh, this is great. And it felt, but I was very, but I was alone. Right. And that felt safe and I felt protected. And then when we moved into um, maybe seeing me as a child, I was able to do that. But as soon as you started to talk about mothers and fathers, <laughs> I went into some sort of like dissociative state because I was like so like dropped in that I could couldn't even think. Right. All just in body, but like 
like nothing going on in the mind. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so there were no good entries to you. There was nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so then that's when we would expect the imagination to kick in. And then we begin to see that uh, the imagination has been limited in certain areas and other areas it's not. And so you, you can actually push into that and open the memory up and so that you can then begin to fill that in. Why is that useful in life? Because we're often in situations where we've not been quite in them before. And if we can really imagine uh, our way to navigate it, uh, we, we can be much more uh, skillful at it. Mm. Good. Someone else? Yeah, I, I could share. Um, I think I was, uh, like you, you mentioned, uh, like the reverse engineering process. And um, I think that was very frustrating for me through almost the entire process. Like coming up with, um, like my safe place was like, it was, it, was, it was like a real memory of like a friend's, you know, like treehouse type place. Right. But then when you started getting it, but then I started thinking, oh, well, it'd be nice if there was an Apple II computer there because then I would have experience with computers at an early age and that would help me, you know, like wanting things to uh, be advantageous to me later on in life. You know, right. which is something I always, which is, I don't know, maybe some sort of weird uh, feeling of uh, like um, well, inadequacy or something. Deconstruct where that, that would have come from which sounds like a pressure to achieve to me if I were analyzing. Right? Yeah, and when I was visually, visualizing my parents, like love from them would, would, was them being like uh, at a certain level of success. It was very abstract. I, don't, I couldn't come up with what they were doing. <laughs> but they were sort of living by example, like, you know, this example that I, you know, was trying to grab for. Yeah. But it was generally frustrating because... I felt like most of my references were from like Steven Spielberg movies, pop <laughs> culture. So yeah, the imagination, you know, or else there was nothing. Like I definitely relate to the, to the nothing thing too. Yeah. Good. Um, so I really like this as a meditation because it really points all of these things out pretty quick, you know, and you, you begin to get a sense of it so that you then really can explore what's there. Right because you're using that database to create the reality that you live in, that conceptual piece. Um, and uh, you can begin to explore it, evaluate what's skillful, what's unskillful. You can be, abandon the unskillful, and then uh, often you'll come up with a deficit of skill, and so then you'll have to begin to develop that skill in order to replace the unskillful thing that you're abandoning so that you keep moving yourself in this direction of, of being much, much more uh, skillfully oriented toward responding. And so you can move into this flow of being and the actions that you take over and over again tend to be much more skillful in that, that way of being quite free. Good. Someone else? I'll talk for a minute. Okay. It's my first time here, but uh been kind of a weird evening because I will tell you that for the first part of the meditation, it is exactly what I did on my own yesterday. 
Oh. And um, I have a very thin data file on my childhood. Uh-huh. Very thin. And so it was easy to find a safe place. That was my grandmother's house. Yes, that was conditioned. Yeah. It was actual experience. But I will tell you that when I got there um, in my emotional time travel machine, I, um, <laughs> I put it on pause and said as compassionately and uh, neutrally as I could, what's this feel like? And the first thought I had, uh, which is an executive level thought was, oh, so this is what it means to be a securely attached child. Uh-huh. And because the words you use, the freedom to explore, the safety, all of that, I got it. And I know because I'm knowing it, right. but I have lived it. As far as the idealized parents, forget about it. Um, my mother kidnapped me when I was about seven. And so I had no father figure, literally, in my life till about the age of 11. And by that time, it was too late. Yeah. And mm-hmm. from a conditioning point of view, there was none. My mother uh, had to work a lot. And so I was a latchkey kid from the get-go. And so... Um, so there was a failure of imagination. Some people have talked about, I kept thinking, well, my, I wanted my dad to be Gregory Peck, quite <laughs> frankly. He was the kind of, kind of guy that I looked up to. And, and he, Atticus Finch, that, yes, you know, that kind indeed. of character. It's exactly where yeah. my mind went. <laughs> uh, but that was against what you were trying to prove here. And I re- recognized that and I appreciated it. And so I, I stopped. There was nothing there. There was nothing there. So. And the imagination couldn't do it? Um, not in that respect, no. Not at all. So then it's pinched off. And so we want to put pressure on it so it opens up again. And then you can yeah. imagine it. <clears throat> that's yeah. the idea. Yep. So that's what I got tonight anyway. Good. Thank you. Thanks. I wanted to chime in that I also had a celebrity parent that I am. <laughs> Why not? If you can, I'm a fiance for my mother, so I don't know. <laughs> well, I have to say it was very. Uh, for the longest time, my ideal parent figures were drawings, black and white drawings, like from a '40s magazine illustration. <clears throat> And I gradually got a watercolor wash and then became 3D. <laughs> so, so my favorite book growing up, I would just add this and then stop, it was Swiss Family Robinson. Not the Disney movie, but the actual book with right. the, the perfect, the perfect family. <laughs> Mom, dad, sis, the animals, the island. I must have read that book 10 times. Uh-huh. So, that's just, yeah, but there was no visuals to go with that. So right. it was just in my mind. Uh, nice. I read it as well, but it was an illustrated version. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So thank you all for coming. Um, I hope that was helpful. It's a little uh, unorthodox, uh, but I find it extremely effective. Um, <clears throat> We're going to switch uh, starting next week in this class to some compassion practice. 
uh, we've been doing the Vipassana side for quite a while, and so now we're going to do some art practices. Uh, Tuesday night, we're just coming to the end of the, the cycle of the beginning series, so if you want to uh, touch in there. Um, in September, in September, I'm starting a level one class. Uh, if you haven't done the, the meditation and attachment, we're going to do a series of three uh, level one classes and then a, a, a day. Th these are day longs on Saturday uh, and then a, a day long on uh, um, secure functioning relationships. The uh, day longs on the Dharma maps are still going. So the first, uh, I think, Saturday is the level one and the third Saturday is the Dharma map class. Um, we're going to start a uh, a level two class uh, at the uh, end of October, the beginning of November. And for the first time, we're gonna do something which we haven't done before, which is uh, offer it uh, for a, a both uh, 7.30 uh, Pacific time and 7.30 uh, East Coast time. So if you're out East and you wanna tune in and not have to stay up until 12.30, we're going to do back-to-back -back level twos uh, one for 7.30 East Coast time and one 7.30 for West Coast time. And then we have a, uh, a virtual retreat coming up the week between Christmas and New Year's, uh, six days. Um, and uh, uh, we're changing the format on that. We used to do um, a sort of pay for the retreat and then do Donna, um, but with the virtual retreat, it's confusing. And so we're just, charging a flat rate for the retreat with no Donna for the first time and see how that goes. We do have scholarship money available for the level two and also for the retreat. So uh, the retreat is limited to 24 places. Uh, it's likely to fill up. Um, the retreat we did this fall did fill up. So if you, that's something that's interesting, you take a look and sign up. Um, <clears throat> I offer the class uh, uh, on a Donna basis, which means I just teach it and then you can come and partake in it. I do hope that you'll support it um, by making a donation that helps support me and also it helps support Metagroup and the work that we're doing. Uh, there was a link in the email you received also. There's a link on the website. Thank you for coming uh, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Thanks, George. Mm -hmm. Thank you, George. Bye.